0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything their passions, pursuits, and points of view. When civil rights are discussed in the context of 20th century history, the economic dimension doesn't seem to be covered in proportion to the political dimension. My guest today has written a book about a man who pushed the economic component and made an impact during a crucial time in the 20th century. Brandon K. Winford is author of John Hervey Wheeler. Black Banking and the Economic Struggle for Civil Rights, published by the University Press of Kentucky, and it's part of the series Civil Rights and the Struggle for Black Equality in the 20th Century. It's available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Brandon, go to Brandon Kyron Winford, that's K-Y-R-O-N, Brandon Kyron winford.com and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at winhistory24. And Brandon, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. So, who was John Hervey Wheeler, and why was he a seminal figure in Black economic history in the twentieth century?
1: So, John Hervey Wheeler was, uh, by profession, he was a, a banker, uh, president of what was then what was the Mechanics and Farmers Bank in Durham, North Carolina, one of the largest Black-owned banks in the United States, headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. He was also a civil rights lawyer. So, he was a banker, lawyer. John Herbert Wheeler was, he kind of came up, he was born into, I like to say, the world of black business. His father was John Leonidas Wheeler, an executive with the world-renowned North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. It was founded in 1898. By the first decade of the 20th century, the early 20th century, it was the largest black-owned insurance company in the United States. And and his moniker was, it was the largest black-owned insurance company in the world. And so John Hervey Wheeler came up in the world of black business. His father was an insurance executive. His mother and father were both educators, among the earliest graduates of Wilberforce University. Uh, He was born in Vance County, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. But he grew up, family had moved to Durham, North Carolina when his father switched professions. He was uh, at one point the president of what was Kittrell College a small school owned by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And they moved to Durham when his father became an insurance agent with the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. Uh, and then by 1912, the family had moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where his father took over the operations of the insurance company uh, in Atlanta. And ultimately, he became the supervisor of the Georgia district and went on to, to have several roles with the, with the company. So John Henry Wheeler uh, and his two sisters, Ruth Hervey and, and Margaret well, Margaret's not his uh, sister. Ruth, Her- Margaret's his mother, Ruth Hervey, one of his sisters. He comes of age; his, his family comes of age, and his sisters in Jim Crow Atlanta, Georgia. So he grows up as part of this Jim Crow Atlanta context. He goes to Morehouse College for what was then, what was then Morehouse Academy for high school. Goes to Atlanta public schools through seventh grade because there wasn't a a, a black high school until nineteen. 19- 24, 1925 in Atlanta. So he's able, because of his father's background and and his ability to pay for his his children to go to school, he goes to Morehouse Academy, uh, graduates from high school there and continues on to Morehouse College. He comes to Durham, North Carolina in 1929 after graduating from Morehouse College and begins this banking career in 1929 of all years Mm -hmm. Uh, right before the (laughs) stock market uh, crashed in October. Good timing there, yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, So John Harvey Wheeler, by the the time of the the modern, the height of the modern civil rights movement, between 1950s and 1960, John Wheeler is the most prominent civil rights figure in North Carolina. And I argue that he was also among the top civil rights figures in the country, especially in the South, during this particular time. You've never heard of him because in many ways, as much as he was out front as really what I like to call a black business activist, he was in many ways a a power broker, often operating uh, behind closed doors, serving a role as a sort of mediator in spaces where the majority of most African-Americans were not in those spaces. And he was often the only kind of power broker. Um, black leader in some of those spaces and it kind of operated in that sense he kind of operated behind the scenes from
0: that standpoint Brandon was he considered part of the establishment and that's why he wasn't
1: identified as moving the needle right well uh, during his during his uh, heyday during his time he was he was actually always considered in some ways ahead of his time and it, it's, an, it's important for us to what I've learned is important for us not to put Those leaders in boxes, you know, we might call someone a moderate, a radical, um, but really have to sort of take someone on their own terms and and really sort of come at them from that lens. And in that way, some of the decisions that may seem a little more uh, less risky, less bold, they may take those kinds of decisions. They make make some decisions that, that don't make sense for someone who might consider a little bit more moderate or something like that. And so we have to sort of really think outside of the box. From that standpoint. Now, having said that, John Wheeler was, for the most part, yes, an establishment kind of person. He believed in institutions, and so he was a bank president, right? He was chairman of the Durham Committee on the affair, Durham Committee on Negro Affairs. At that time, one of the most powerful civil rights organizations, certainly in Durham, but throughout North Carolina, it came to have a significant voting bloc uh, among African-Americans in Durham. He was also part of organizations such as the NAACP. Uh, he was a part of the Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated. In many ways, and he argued this toward the end of his life and made this point, that he encouraged African-Americans to take part in organization, right? institutions to take part in, in organizations, collective organizations, and to use pressure tactics and legal tactics in order to obtain a certain aspects of civil rights. And so I, I always look at him as as that kind of person, which in many ways, as a sort of criticism, he was limited from that standpoint, because he was, in some ways, you can look at him as being beholden to institutions from that particular standpoint. How did you
0: focus on John? Wheeler, because of your background, you're able to pick and choose a lot of different academic right. subjects and personalities. How did you focus on John Hervey
1: Wheeler? Well, so I went to a school at a school called North Carolina Central University, historically black college in Durham, North Carolina. Actually, the first liberal arts, public liberal arts college established for African Americans in the country. Uh, and so In my master's degree program, I had an opportunity to write an inmate, a master's thesis on the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs with John Hervey Wheeler, headed between 1957 and 1978. And so it's through that research in that organization that I ran across John Hervey Wheeler. And he struck me because not only was he chairman of the organization, but he had his hands literally in everything related to black life. Uh, in the state of North Carolina and the South, especially when it came to Black economic life, uh, but more importantly, when it came to the fight for, for civil rights in North Carolina. And so uh, he he agitated for educational equality, public accommodations, voting rights for African Americans. Uh, and so he just struck me as a really influential and powerful figure. And these figures were, were, were so often uh, not privy to Getting a sense of who these people are, because we're when we think of civil rights, we're we're more focused on some of the some of the larger figures uh, that have become so germane to to how we understand the civil rights movement. And so, this struck me as a really sort of uh, really powerful person when it came to his influence, both politically, from an educational standpoint, and then also as it relates to um, economics. And so, I wanted to really explore his life, and he decided to do so if I ever got into a PhD program. Once I got into my PhD program, I um, ran across a huge collection of his materials. And for historians, you know, dealing with the the primary materials, the archival material, and having a stash of archival material that you can work with is really important to being able to sort of write history and, and, and interpret and and, and get people to think about history from a particular standpoint. And so um, that's really sort of how I got in, came came across or was introduced, I, I would say, to John Herbie Wheeler. The primary material that you describe, is it at a point where it
0: was digitized or is it still basically paper and then you're having to go <laughs> old school to do that research?
1: Right. It's a really good question because I started looking at, I uh, initially started looking at those papers in 2006. And at that time, they were not available to, to researchers. And so I had held conversations with the archivists, head archivists there, and they were able to do what they call fast-paced processing to put them into a position where someone who's just coming in and wanting to look at those materials to look at them pretty quickly without having to go through this lengthy process of pro- what they call processing the materials, getting them ready for researchers, putting them in archival folders, making sure there is what what's called a finding aid, uh, like sort of a guide where you can identify certain materials. And so it was between 2006 and 2016 before they were fully processed. And so even when I was initially doing research at the dissertation stage, I wasn't able to take photographs in terms of uh, using my, you know, we didn't really use smartphones for pictures then, but I wasn't able to use a digital camera. I wasn't able to even request photocopies of the material. So literally, I had to kind of go old school by just taking notes uh, as I was looking at the material. And I had to think really strategically about if there was a lot of material that I wanted, how to think about cross-referencing that material with another collection that I knew was available and accessible. And I could do all the things in terms of taking photographs and things of that nature. To the the last point, they are not digitized. And, and obviously, that reason is, is resources. You have to have the resources to digitize those materials. Um, but they are in really good, really good order in terms of researchers. The finding aid is accessible. And so it's, it's a really, really rich and, and untapped collection even still.
0: If it weren't for you, then they probably would have still been sitting there and not even moving along that processing
1: belt. Yeah, I would imagine so. You know, I I was able to have the conversations early on, even before I went got into my PhD program. So I had a few years to kind of have these conversations, and once I kind of made the decision that I think I might want to work on this project, the the library, the um, Robert W. Woodruff Library at Atlanta University at the Atlanta University Center, was did a really great job in supporting my really wanting to to get into these papers and do research and. I'm really excited that they're fully processed and available to anyone who wants to. And, and once they allow one researcher, even at the early stages to look at the materials, then their policy is that they allow researchers, period, to, to look into those. Papers. And so it wasn't like I had an exclusive lock on looking at those papers and nobody else could look at them. Yes, just, but you, you helped unlock the door. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Did you find in the, in the collection any
1: oral histories, any recorded oral histories? No, um, and, and as a matter of fact, most of the recordings that were actually in the materials were recordings of John, John Wheeler, even as a college student, was a really, uh, was a, was a violinist, well-trained violinist. And there were recordings of him playing the violin in, in an orchestra. That, that were not accessible because of the, the preservation issues and, and getting them, trying to get them to a point where you can copy them without fully destroying them was an issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, there, in those materials, there were no oral histories. There were a few oral histories that I was able to find, at least really one really great oral history with John Every Wheeler. Uh, there is, um, a uh, a writer by the name of, of Robert Penn Warren was the Nobel laureate had, and wrote, what's his most, one of his famous is All the King's Men. And he did it. He wrote a book during the 1960s where he did all these interviews with um, civil rights leaders and influential African-Americans. And John Wheeler happened to be one of those interviewees. Uh, and basically the entire book is written basically using really, really creatively, those oral histories. And so those oral histories are now available, um, initially uh, available at the University of Kentucky. And then they're they're digitized through Mm -hmm. Vanderbilt University, through the Robert Peyton Warren Center at Vanderbilt University. And so leaders like uh, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and others, uh, those oral histories are are available. Uh, And that was, like I had done all this research, had looked at all these materials, and, you you know, you're doing, you're doing research on this kind of contemporary figure and you're kind of like, what does he sound like? And you're imagining so many things. And so having done that research and when I actually finally got an opportunity to hear him talk and, and be asked questions, that was that was a, a, a really significant moment for me and my research. Uh, and then at the University of North Carolina, um, John Wheeler was also a part of uh, an anti-poverty agency called the North Carolina Fund. And during that particular period, they have recordings from meeting minutes, uh, then their oral histories with, not oral histories, but their rec- live recorded meetings where you can kind of hear, hear them discuss different issues and kind of, you kind of get to hear their voices, uh, things along those lines. But that's the only really sort of recorded interview that I was able to, to, to utilize that, that I was able to find. With John Herbie Wheeler,
0: in your research, did you think about somehow going to the records of the old bank or insurance company and see if maybe there were some recordings there of him in action as well?
1: Yes. So the uh, the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company, the company that his father was an executive for, and then John Herbie Wheeler uh, does uh, have some role uh, with the North Carolina Mutual. They the company donated. Or their their the company archives ended up at, at Duke University, and so another untapped um, historical resource is the North Carolina Mitchell Life Insurance Company archives. And while there are different kinds of recordings and and things along those lines, no no kind of formalized kind of oral histories that were conducted with someone you know writing a book per se in in those papers. Uh, but you do again find, like I found um, the ground, the groundbreaking ceremony of the North Carolina Mutual Building, which they completed in 1966. John Wheeler gives us a, a speech, and it's a, it's not only a, a audio, but it's a video, and with audio. And so I identified that in the collection, they were able to make a a, a copy of it. And I, I have a digital copy, so I was able to not only just kind of hear his voice, but to kind of see him uh, give his speech. Uh, And and I should go back and say that during, in the 1970s, a scholar by the name of Robert E. Weir wrote a book called um, Black Business in the New Mm -hmm. South, A Social History of the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. He conducted a lot of interviews with the executives from the North Carolina Mutual Life, other uh, African-American leaders in and around Durham, North Carolina. And those are available through the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina. So there are a lot of oral histories that are available. Uh, John Wheeler dies in 1978, kind of when we're is kind of uh, really picking up his recordings of those oral histories. He had done some oral history with John Wheeler, but it was, you know, he took notes. And, you know, I had actually emailed him and just kind of asked him if, if he had any of those audios or anything available. But he, he told me, you know, he took, Handwritten notes, uh, and so, and I imagine it was uh, was John Wheeler's probably. He probably did a lot of, also kind of phone interviews where he took a lot of notes. But you, you, there's so many oral histories with with those um, black leaders in Durham, and North Carolina, in the South. So I was able to really sort of take advantage of of, of some of those that were available. Well, it sounds
0: too. Uh, once you got the sense of the man through his video image and his voice it really helped you to write the book because you could see the tone and feel the tone and hear the tone and that i'm sure informed the writing of the book too what was the most surprising thing you discovered about him one of the
1: most that's a really really great question one of the most surprising things about john wheeler um well let me put it like this i wasn't so much surprised about some of the material that I came up with. But I was, I guess I was surprised by, and I guess I shouldn't have been, by his kind of intellectual curiosity. In other words, we don't often think of, of business people as a kind of, as kind of intellectuals in that sense, right? We, we see them as, you know, thinking about money and thinking about profit. Um, but it, what I got to see through him and through his, his study of different issues and his his uh, activism is that he took an intellectual approach to understanding all of the issues that he was involved in just as much uh, as he did in other ways right and so I guess I, I I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was really surprised at the the, the depths that, that that he took to really sort of understand from an intellectual standpoint his involvement. In every area of of black life, uh, and so even in his you know in his speeches, in his in his, his writings, there is a high level of thought and and research that went into how he understood particular issues, and that in turn informed his the positions he took when it came to public policy. Uh, and so I don't know if that's a a kind of uh what I was just sort of taken aback by, but but what I found really interesting was the level of intellectualism that I found when I started, when I began to sort of look into John Wheeler, thinking about how he understood civil rights and and why he thought about civil rights in the way that he did and and why particular goals related to civil rights were in the forefront of his thinking. It was just really something that just really sort of stands with me. And so it really sort of gives me a different kind of understanding of how we can think of of. You know, when we think of business people, we just think of them thinking about the bottom line and coming up with strategies to make money and and they certainly do that. But when you're in this position as a uh, during his time as an African American business person, uh, there is a, a different level of commitment to community that is I wouldn't say it's not present in 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 how we understand other groups and and their involvement in business. but I think for African Americans who uh, were business people they had to think about the ways in which they had a commitment to community. And, and for a banker also, uh, commu- community and one's role in the community was important because that's how, you know, as a bank, you know, part of it is getting people to trust you, right, and trust you with their, their money. And they have to understand that you have a sense of integrity about you and that you're thinking about their interests as much as you are your own interests or the interests you, interests you serve through your leadership of a particular business.
0: Don't you think he was intellectual in his approach in this sense? He wanted to steer the region, Southern region, toward the end of Jim Crow segregation for economic reasons. And that in itself, to me, is revolutionary because there's a lot of power there. People may not realize that. They're thinking of, again, the political right. that we talked about and And other influences. There's religion and the political sphere and others. But just from the economic point of view, that if you had a population that previously, because of slavery and then segregation and Jim Crow, was, let us say, below the poverty line, and all of a sudden now can become self sufficient and grow and develop capital and create jobs, that in itself is powerful.
1: Oh, most certainly. And, and to not only that, but he, his kind of philosophy, if you want to call it that, an approach to how African Americans were going to gain economic power, you know, he articulates this when he writes pieces, uh, writes articles for organizations like the Tar Banker, where he's speaking to this group of bankers who would after World War II, when things are sort of opening up in terms of we think of post World War II prosperity, he's talking to bankers who had influence over their communities, not just from an economic standpoint, but you know the, the the people with the money, you know, influence so much, right? When we think about sort of the future, and his attachment of or his linking like economic rights to the the need for African Americans to gain all of their civil rights simultaneously as a pathway to black economic power and then black economic power or new South prosperity is sort of how I frame it in the book was important to, or was an important contribution to the idea of new South prosperity. The region itself could not um, compete with the North, the Midwest, the West, if it did not have some level of, of, of new South prosperity and that wasn't going to happen without African-Americans or with African-Americans being in this sort of perpetual state of economic inferiority, it just wasn't going to happen from his perspective.
0: And that comes from that perspective of the intellectual approach that he had.
1: Right. Right. Most definitely really thinking about, really thinking through these issues, you know, and, you know, I, I interviewed someone who knew him, who, you know, he didn't so much call what John Willow was thinking and how he thought through him as, as kind of visionary. Although I, I see it as something very different. I I do see where he was able to take his understanding of how to work through particular issues as a kind of linchpin for how he understood where we were going, where African Americans were going as a people and how to get there. And I, and also thinking about that, you know, I talk a lot about him being an integrationist in terms of having an integrationist framework. Um, but even with integration, he didn't see things like black institutions kind of falling by the wayside. He saw, you know, he felt like his bank, the Kansas Farmers Bank, if given the opportunity to tap into a larger marketplace, they were going to be able to compete with any bank of comparable size. And so for him, integration was going to help strengthen black institutions. Now, the end result was a bit different, um, but I also think he really thought about the ways in which integration needed to be worked out. And so, you know, one example he uses is that, you know, if a you know in Durham there were two hospitals, the white hospital, a black hospital, with integration, if you merge these two hospitals, the superintendent of the black hospital has been trained at Harvard University, right, and all that comes with that. So, with the merger of this these two institutions. Was this Harvard-trained doctor going to become the superintendent, or not? And so integration had to be worked in. And, and if not, why? If we're thinking about Harvard as as this pinnacle of of higher education and the best of the best, right? If, if these institutions merge, are black doctors, black nurses going to be able to attend to to white patients, right? What were going to be the limitations? And so he felt like. All of these things had to be worked out in order for integration to really happen successfully. And now we can have a whole conversation about why that, you know, all that really doesn't happen. But he thought through some of these things. He thought about civil rights in different in particular stages. Right. We had the legal and he's not the only one. But the legal phase, when you think of the NAACP and the culmination that ends with Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954 for the Supreme Court outlaws segregation in schools and, and 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 so forth. And then he thought about, you know, participating in the direct action phase of the movement. And then after the direct action phase, he, he believed in what what he called the implementation phase, where articulated, wrote about this, in this is the implementation phase. And that's, it had to do more with tackling the institutionalized racism. And for him, that was actually going to be the most difficult area or phase to really sort of penetrate, right? You had a legal phase, you had a direct action phase, And they were effective, Um, but the implementation phase, right? You know, was that effective? And and but that was going to be the that was going to be the the major wall. But that uh, goes back to the '60s.
0: That goes back to his again his intellectual curiosity and his thinking ahead. And that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Brandon K. Winford, author of John Hervey Wheeler: Black Banking and the Economic Struggle for Civil Rights, published by the University Press of Kentucky, and part of the series, Civil Rights and the Struggle for Black Equality in the 20th Century. It's available on Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about Brandon, go to ChironWinford.com and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at winhistory24. Brandon, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ira, for having me. I've enjoyed my time. Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.